Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to welcome three of the global leads for Equality Now, Tsitsi Madakaria, Global Lead and Sex Trafficking, Antonia Kirkland, Global Lead, Legal Equality and Access to Justice, and Flavia, Flavia, sorry about that, Wangovia, Global Lead, Ending Harmful Practices. Equality Now's mission is to achieve legal and systemic change that addresses violence and discrimination against women and girls around the world. Cici, Flavia, and Antonia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to start with an understanding of where Equality Now is working in the world. Um, and I know you each approach this from different aspects. So um, Antonio, why don't I start with you? So from the, from the access to justice and the legal equality um, side of things, where, do you, where are you focusing your efforts? Mm-hmm. Um, so Equality Now truly is an international human rights organization. So we do have a global lens and a global focus. Um, and we work with partners all around the world um, and have for almost the last 30 years. Um, and really promote um, equality in the law. And that can take many forms and affect women and girls throughout their lifetime. Um, So we really try to amplify the campaigns on the ground in a particular country, uh, whether it's um, trying to end child marriage and discrimination in minimum age marriage laws or trying to get inheritance rights so women can uh, inherit equally to men and boys in their families. Um, So it really depends. Uh, but yes, we have a global focus. And, and this is something all countries have committed to do under international law is to guarantee legal equality. But unfortunately, we still don't have it. Well, and that's something I definitely uh, we will be getting into today are, are some of those laws. But Cece, is there a particular area or several countries where I, I know sex trafficking is a is a global challenge as well. But are there particular countries where there is a concentrated effort at this point? Um, Yeah, I think as you rightly say that uh, sex trafficking is a global problem. Uh, So there's no country or region in the world that's not affected by it. Uh, But from Equality Now's perspective, some of our campaigns um, are targeted in particular countries. Uh, So we've worked in Kenya, for instance, uh, which is uh, really a regional hub for trafficking and sex tourism in the East Africa region. Um, So we are working with local organizations and linking with the government to ensure that the laws that are there around sex trafficking and and sex tourism are properly implemented to protect uh, women and girls. Uh, We also have work in the UK um, where trafficking happens internally within the UK itself, uh, but the UK is also a a country of a a destination country for uh, women from Eastern Europe, uh, from Africa, 
um, and from Asia. So part of what we are also doing within the UK context is to ensure that the Modern Slavery Act um, is properly implemented. And we're also working um, around um, ensuring that the government addresses the vulnerabilities that lead to exploitation. So things like uh, homelessness, um, lack of shelter or problems around immigration rules. What we've seen, for instance, in the UK context is an increase in the phenomenon called uh, sex for rent, where because you know women are really um, uh, vulnerable, have no accommodation, they then find themselves in these situations where they are having to exchange sex uh, for, for somewhere to stay. So it's you know, very basic things like that um, that we are also trying to address. Yeah, that makes sense. And Flavia, similarly for end harmful practices, um, and I have to say in doing my research, I was surprised by the number of United States states that, mm-hmm. um, I will, that's the most positive way I can phrase this, do not outlaw child marriage. Um, and, and uh, but I know that that is not just a United States challenge. Um, and then there's also the female genital mutilation yeah. Um, side of it. So are there, are there particular parts of the world where you, you focus your efforts as well? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to acknowledge that the problem is global. <clears throat> it's not limited to particular countries, just as uh, Antonia alluded to. So when it comes to, uh, and then also that harmful practices are very, uh, like the, the list is long, only that we do focus on uh, child marriage and female genital mutilation. We have other kinds of harmful practices, including, you know, um, honor crimes and forced feeding and breast ironing and all. So it's, I think it's really important to just put it out there that there's really much more that women and girls have to endure in terms of harmful practices in many communities. Uh, But for us uh, who have specifically prioritized uh, female genital mutilation and child marriage, uh, so this work takes us to many African countries. We have very strong and and long-standing campaigns in Africa, be it in East Africa, in West Africa, and parts of Northern Africa. But for for, uh, FGM and and, and child marriage, we also realize that the issue is also very prevalent in the Middle East. In Asia, for example, we're discovering, sorry, (coughs) pockets of countries where we have uh, child marriage being a very big issue and also female genital mutilation. And of course, also in Europe and in, in, and in the United States, as you rightly put it. So uh, I think it just depends on where the campaigns are, where the structure and where this possibility of advancing change and, and, and where the resourcing allows. And that's where we go and not to say that the issue is only in those particular areas. It is truly global in scope. <clears throat> and our work really tries to see how can we link the national level campaigns with the regional level efforts, with the global level movement and investments so that uh, we are really connecting the dots and as our role as equality now also uh, from our vantage point is also to amplify to amplify the work that is also happening at the national level and global platforms and also to ensure that the the, uh, movement and decisions which are being made by international and global uh, rights uh, entities and bodies are also cascading to the national level so it's really uh, an intermediary kind of role but also with very specific campaigns in some of the regions that I've already mentioned, yeah. I think what I realized during my research for this conversation was, um, I think complicated is the best word I could come up with and that there are 
there are so many issues that people may not traditionally think of that contribute to these, these challenges for women and girls. And Cece, you mentioned some of them, the poverty, um, the, the homelessness, um, the lack of job resources. And Antonio, you alluded to some as well in terms of the um, access to property and the custody rights. And, and Flavia, you, you highlighted um, even just the challenge of, you know, if the international body is enacting something, how does that actually filter down to the country and local level? And similarly, if you have a groundswell of local activists, how does how do you amplify that and lift it up? Um, and this is, I, you know, just the, I, I have found with a lot of these conversations, I get a little bit overwhelmed with just how many parts or ways you can come at this challenge. And at the same time, that is exciting. Um, because there is no one lever um, that you can change. Um, and so uh, I think um, I think one of my first questions is, so does the, and I'm excited that you use the law to, to enact these changes um, and whether that is helping to um, make sure that the laws are enforced and bringing to attention when they are not or really helping to enact laws um, and even some of the strategic litigations that you have been involved in. Um, these are um, all of the ways as we've been having conversations in the United States lately um, that the laws are what are sticky. Um, and so that you need to be changing the laws or implementing the laws in order to get real change and, and progress. And so that was a long in introduction to does the legal change lead the cultural change? Does the cultural change lead the legal change? Or is it, it depends on kind of what you're dealing with and where you are. <laughs> and, and, and Tony, that may be the, the best question, you, since you're the, the, the access to justice and legal equality, that might be best to start with you. That's a really interesting question. And I, I think, uh... Yeah, it really depends on the context and the situation, but I think it's much harder to have social change if you don't have that equality built into the law as the foundation and sort of the first stepping stone. Because if you have blatant discrimination in the law, how can a woman or a girl get justice if her rights are violated um, for human rights? So for us, that's a starting point. That's not the end point, but it's, yeah, foundational, we think. Um, but Sitsi and Flavia may have more <laughs> to say on that subject. Um, I think, it, I don't think it's a very uh, black and white response in that sense. I totally agree with Antonia, it's very, very contextual. But I think um, cultural change, uh, social norm change, change gender transformation, uh, gender, you know, because all those uh, structural issues, uh, they take time to address, etc. But if we do uh, say that we are living in communities that respect the rule of law and that we are guided by certain international principles of human rights uh, that provide for certain rights which are inherent you know, in all human beings, regardless of their race, gender, et cetera, it means when we go against those principles, then it means we have violated the rights of people. And in this case, women and girls, and it means um, the law, uh, legal framework, be it international, regional, or even national, becomes a very critical way through which we ensure that we safeguard uh, the rights of people. So for example, even as you're trying to change the minds of communities to, uh, to abandon a practice such as female genital mutilation or child marriage, the girls who are getting undergoing the practice today need to be protected. 
there still needs to be prevention. We cannot say that we're sacrificing a whole generation of girls as we work on social norm change. One day, sometime, we shall change our minds. But what happens in the interim to the women and girls who are here today? So I think uh, the law becomes a very critical pathway through which we either prevent and where the violations do occur, and if we do agree, across the board that these are indeed violations. Then the law is also the way through which you provide remedies, access to justice, uh, you know, uh, survivor protection, et cetera. So because the law is also open ways for policies and those policies may also include uh, budgeting. And that budgeting may also provide for things such as awareness raising, sensitization, norm change. So you see uh, also that very strict uh, understanding and perception of legislation is also, I think, uh, needs to be uh, demystified. I think laws are much broader beyond criminalizing uh, acts. The laws also provide for policies, policies which also provide for avenues through which we actually address cultural barriers. So I think um, that conversation is very important because it's one of the areas where we're actually always knocking our heads. Uh, and also, I think it's important to also emphasize that it's not a one wins all approach. Uh, it's really a holistic approach, uh, multiple approaches, all intervening at the same time and enabling us to get there. But I think what is also critical, as I conclude, to underscore when you're having a discussion around uh, the laws and culture, et cetera, is that it's very important to work with communities, even when you're, uh, uh, you're um, creating laws. It's so critical to work with communities. Communities and the society needs to understand why we are having that discussion as to why the law is important. Because sometimes we come and parachute uh, solutions, including laws, and then if they are met with so much resistance, and if we had actually used a very participatory and a human rights-based approach to actually coming up with those laws, we'd have less resistance. Um, not zero resistance, because it's actually <laughs> difficult to change, but less resistance. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, and there certainly is, um, I guess, a community buy-in that is always yeah. important. Um, yeah. And uh, I assume that uh, laws are made similarly in most places where, it, especially if there is a groundswell from the public or from particular communities, that tends to catch the attention of legislators and drive that change forward. Yeah. Titi, do you, do you have anything that you would like to add to this part? Um, yeah, I think I, you know, I agree with um, Antonia and, uh, and Flavia. And just to say, you know, uh, just from experience in the context of trafficking, that once you have laws in place as well, um, they enable people to have conversations about what, what the issue looks like in their own context and how they can also resolve it, you know, within their own context. Um, so we've seen that really with uh, trafficking legislation because it's fairly new um, across most countries. The international framework around trafficking specifically uh, was set in 2003 and most countries are you know, just starting to come up with their trafficking legislation. So some of what that has helped is for people to say, okay, within our context, so there's the international framework. So what does trafficking really look like in the context of Kenya or in the context of the UK or the US and how do we address it at the community level as well as the, at the national level. So I think it just gives people a basis to start unpacking what the rights look like, what are the responsibilities of the different actors and what is their own role in terms of, you know, uh, taking forward the rights that are in those international frameworks and as they cascade down into, into na national legislation. So I think it can be really practical, uh, you know, sort of like a practical tool 
to enabling people to realize their rights because then it offers um, a platform for conversation around those rights. Yeah. And it also allows for analysis. I noticed some, I think it was a fact sheet um, on Equality Now's website related to decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution and what the impact of that had been um, in terms of um, the change that people anticipated those types of laws would bring. Um, and so uh, Titi, to your point, um, I would love for you to, to speak to, to some of perhaps what people thought would happen and what people actually happened. And then also how that how that lends it to the continuing efforts with regard to trafficking and, and things along that line. Yeah, um, I think our starting point when we are looking at um, you know, gender-based violence, including uh, trafficking and sexual exploitation, uh, we are really looking at, at, at it as something that is grounded in gender inequality and discrimination in law, you know, some of the points that uh, Antonia was raising earlier. Um, so it's really about um, you know the extent to which people can rea can realize their own rights, um, the extent to which through the law we can begin to talk about addressing discrimination and and, and gender-based violence and vulnerabilities that lead to exploitation, but at the same time also calling for accountability of those that are exploiting. So we are really looking at it in terms of a three-pronged approach that we need accountability. We need realization of rights, but underlying all of that, we need to be looking at gender um, equality and ensuring that there is equality within society. Um, so the conversation around how do we deal with prostitution um, then uses that sort of lens. Um, so essentially, we would then be saying, you know, let's look at the person in prostitution. What is it that is driving, you know, that that prostitution? So it's inequality. It's, uh, it's, it's poverty, it's all those vulnerabilities that arise from that. And at the same time, there's someone who's taking advantage of that vulnerability. Therefore, we need to ensure that they are accountable at law, um, whether it's through criminalization or penalization, but also having provisions around criminalization and penalization. Part of it is also awareness raising, where people then begin to, to ask, you know, is it, is it right for us to be buying women's bodies in this way? Is it right for us to be trafficking women and exploiting them for sex or labor or whatever? So again, enables conversation within, you know, within at society level. So what we've seen in countries that have adopted that sort of three-pronged approach is it has been a decrease in trafficking um, and, and more awareness at the community level around gender equality. So more people sort of saying, you know, we stand for equality, we stand for women's rights. Uh, we want to ensure that women have equal access to opportunities so that they don't uh, feel coerced to be in the sex trade and so on. So the, you know, we, I think it's getting back again to that point where the law becomes um, a tool for, 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 for societal change and for changing social norms and behaviors. And we've seen that you know, with um, countries that have adopted laws that look at um, uh, sex trafficking, it's links to the sex trade and actually saying, you know, let's step back and look at equality. Let's ensure that women have their rights, but also let's be very clear about you know, accountability of those who exploit. And Flavia, you mentioned something, so I'm going to start with you on this, um, but you, you said something along the lines of people have to agree that there needs to be change. 
Um, and so I, that led me to, uh, to a question of how difficult is that sometimes? And maybe that depends on the topic that we're talking about and the culture that we're dealing with. Um, but then how do you work to get people to that common ground? Wow, that's the that's the question. If we all had the answer to, I guess would be quickly fast tracking our way to ending some of this. Uh, <laughs> I've solved I've practices. solved all of our problems just like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, um, I think uh, social norm change, consensus building, uh, the community level, and things like it's it's really uh, difficult and and long. Um, how do, it can really draw out. Eh? Um, and that's why for me, it's really important that while we are at it, we are also safeguarding the rights uh, of women and girls at that very moment, because uh, we cannot continue to be collateral, even as we try and figure out how to bring in uh, the gatekeepers, be they, be they religious leaders, be they uh, traditional leaders, be they uh, our, just even our parliamentarians, because these are not problems that are just limited to particular uh, sections of the, of the world, eh? because we have a tendency also to think these are African problems. No, child marriage is global, FGM is global. So no matter what structures you're addressing uh, globally, the resistance tends to be the same. And it's really all anchored on patriarchy uh, and you know, just power structures that uh, perpetuate uh, uh, a way of, uh, of looking at particular gender and, and things as lower than the others. So in terms of just responding to your, uh, your question, it's, it's really, in my opinion, education is a very central piece of all this. And I don't mean like just formal education in a classroom. I think just continuous education, uh, um, be it at the community level, at the family level, informally, uh, just like working with the youth, especially with the younger population in terms of uh, the values and, and, and perspectives that we actually instill upon the younger generation on, on how, we, how, we, um, how we value human beings, how we view human beings, the value placed on one human being vis-a-vis -vis the other. So I think if we can really uh, advance that, uh, I, um, especially uh, when I look at Africa, where I come from, it's a very youthful continent. Um, I think 60% of the population I think is below 25 if I got it right. I'm not very good with statistics, but it's a very youthful population. So I see so much promise. Eh? I see so much promise in really investing in changing the narrative at that level and really working with that particular group, even as we work on our leaders and our policymakers to shift and change legislation and laws and all. I think it really is a ripe ground for, 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 for triggering uh, change. And I think it's happening. I think it's really already happening. It's taking time, but in the interim, we still have to safeguard uh, and protect and prevent the rights of everyone today and now, um, even as we work on that very long uh, process of, uh, of shifting mindsets through the upcoming generations and being innovative and all, yeah. Yep, absolutely. So it is both the, the legal change and as you mentioned, yeah. the support system within the legal yeah. realm as well. It's not just laws outlawing or prohibiting these, no. but it's the all of the support around that yeah. as well to, I guess, try to prevent those conditions from happening in the first place. Um, there are a lot of laws, when you think about it, that relate to this. Um, national ones, regional and international ones, there are protocols and also uh, all sorts of, of ways people have been attempting to address this. Um, and this is probably a question for each of you, but are there, are there particular 
it's actually sort of a two-part question. Is there a particular law that you think is most critical to the work that you're doing um, or a protocol or, or something along that line? And, and where are the laws still not really adequately addressing some of these challenges? And Antonia, I'll start with you on that one. Sure. Um, maybe I'll try to answer in reverse order. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so the World Bank did a study um, last year and only eight countries have equality, full equality in their law, um, just on the books. Of course, there's always implementation <laughs> questions, sure. but in terms of, yeah, just equal laws, there's only eight countries. So the vast majority of the world still has equality, inequality written into their laws. So that's our starting place. I think um, at the national level, the most important law, of course, is the constitution in most countries. Um, and still many, too many countries <laughs> don't actually have explicit gender or sex equality in their constitutions, um, including the United States. Yep. Um, so we never got the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, later, I'll, I can talk maybe about our hope <laughs> for this year. Um, so I think at the national level, you definitely need that. Um, and then um, regionally, we have some really progressive instruments. I, would, I think probably the um, protocol on the rights of women in Africa or the Maputo protocol at the regional level is one of the most progressive and explicitly addresses harmful practices. Um, and then at the international level, we have a women's rights convention. Um, the short name is CEDAW, um, but we also use other instruments um, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, which do have equality provisions um, or the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So we try to mainstream sort of the women's and girls' rights into those. Um, and use um, the UN to put pressure on governments to live up to all those standards. Um, and so we'll work with partners um, to get the attention of those committees that question the governments when they come to them and say, how are you actually implementing this treaty at the national level? And we found that to be a pretty powerful tool. Um, and there's also something called the Universal Periodic Review where governments will um, question and make recommendations to each other and how they can better live up to those instruments. So okay. yeah, there, there's a quite a good set. I know that there's more and we, we do wanna have even better recommendations coming out of these committees. And so we, um, we uh, input into those and Sitsi has a great example of um, something that the CEDAW came out, committee came out with recently that will hopefully advance the dialogue at the national level too. Sitsi, please, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so this is really the, the general recommendation that came out of the CEDO committee. Um, so each uh, human rights treaty has a committee that oversees the, you know, the implementation and puts out uh, recommendations to governments on a regular basis where they try and really explain what a particular provision of the protocol could look like in terms of implementation. Um, so for the past two years, we're very much involved in uh, engaging with the CEDAW committee on a general recommendation that they were working on, on trafficking in women and girls uh, in the context of uh, global migration. Um, so some of what we've done is, you know, put forward the experiences of survivors on the ground, put forward our experience of working at the national level. 
Um, and we you know we are happy to see that some of the recommendations that we put forward, uh, for instance, around you know really looking at sex trafficking as uh, part of violence against women and really articulating that it is a form of violence against women. Um, we, we thought that was a very good point. Um, they were also quite clear that they wanted to see more governments looking at the issue of um, the use of uh, digital technology and the internet in the abuse and trafficking of uh, women and girls, which is a big deal now when you see, you know, the, the massive increase in the use of uh, the internet to sexually exploit women and girls. Um, so our hope is that, you know, governments can begin to, you know, really critically look at those recommendations and say within our context, how do we domesticate some of this international law? How do we strengthen uh, existing policies and programs to ensure that they're really taking forward, um, you know, recommendations that would um, ultimately, I think, you know, help to address uh, uh, trafficking and, and sexual exploitation, which is really you know, still um, a, a big problem worldwide. Yeah. Well, that's 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 great. That's you must be excited by that progress as well. And now it is then trying to make sure that it is implemented, uh, which is yeah. it's always it's always a a, a multi uh, a multi front challenge. I would say is the best. Quite want to call it a war, but it's a there's a, there's a lot of um, skirmishes uh, on all sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the Beijing platform, um, and uh, we are more than 25 years, I believe, out from this at this point. Um, and I would like to get your opinion still on, you know, some of the work left to do um, under that Beijing platform. And I'm not sure who would be best to start, so I will I will let you all um, uh, tell me who who is best to start on that one. That's Antonia's baby. <laughs> Yes, so yes, it's been 26 years since the Beijing Platform for Action has been adopted. Um, and it really laid out 12 critical areas um, that needed to be addressed to advance women and girls' rights. Uh, and But as a legal advocacy um, organization, we decided back in 1999, when it was coming up to the fifth anniversary, see very specifically how our government is doing on eliminating sex discriminatory laws. Um, so that's been our focus every five years. And um, we have on our website actually um, where the audience can take action on those specific examples of discriminatory laws. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, um, these can affect a girl or a woman throughout their lifetime um, from whether it's being married off at a very young age um, where the boy or young man has to be 18, but the girl could be married off at 15 or younger even, um, and then all the way through discriminatory retirement and pension provisions. So really a range of laws, uh, whether it's in the family sphere, economic sphere, or explicit violence even, um, where for example, a rapist could marry their victim and then um, either not be prosecuted or escape punishment. Uh, so explicit impunity for rape through marriage. Um, so those kind of laws, we give a, an example from several countries all over the world um, and people can write to the governments and ask them to change those laws. So that's a very concrete commitment that came out of the Beijing Platform for Action um, that we try to highlight. And yeah, it's been taken up on um, 
by UN Women, which is one of the key UN agencies as part of their equality and law strategy. Um, but we still need to do much more, particularly in the area of family law, which is very tough because of um, the association with religion, culture, tradition, even more so than say labor codes or <laughs> sort of non-controversial <laughs> type of <laughs> issues. Um, yes. So that's our real focus going forward at the moment. Got it. I also would like to talk about, and we have touched on some of these um, very briefly, but there were there are a whole host of equity issues, and I admit this is a little bit of my United States blinders here, um, that I don't feel like we need, that we deal with here in the U.S., although I'm sure that's also somewhat short-sighted, um, but that are real challenges around the world, and those are such things as um, um, restrictions from participating in a legal process, so being able to give testimony or evidence, um, restrictions on travel, um, restrictions on your access to your property or your inheritance or custody of your children, um, or even access to certain jobs. Um, and like I said, I'm sure I'm sure there is some of that in the United States. I, I am I am not so naive to think that we are above it all, um, but it's certainly from a from my own Western view of things that feels as if that is more limited here than not. And I would like you to challenge me on that um, because I, I want to make sure I have the correct lens. <laughs> I'll be happy to take up that challenge unless it's your Flavia wanna <laughs> go first. Um, I think, uh, well, going back to the, our constitution. So without an equal rights amendment in the constitution, um, women have had to rely on um, the 14th Amendment, which is not as strong. So when a case comes to the courts, um, there are sort of three levels of judicial scrutiny. Um, and, you know, gender is only sort of at the middle level. It doesn't get as high of a scrutiny, the discrimination or inequality that's perpetrated against women as, say, race, which is at the strictest level. So with an Equal Rights Amendment, um, it would be much harder to get away with discrimination and violence against women and girls. Um, yeah, uh, and I would encourage people to go to our website to learn more about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and also we are a lead member of the ERA coalition that is really pushing for that. And we're really hopeful that this year with the new administration, maybe we can actually get it um, because we have the right number of state ratifications now. We have 38. Um, there's a case in the courts, um, but we're hoping that the Biden administration will get the archivist to actually publish and incorporate it. Um, and there's also a couple of bills in Congress that people can write to their uh, Congress people um, to eliminate the deadline because there was a deadline attached originally to the bill, but it's not something that we feel is legally necessary, but it's good to cover all fronts. Um, so yeah, so that's in terms of the constitution, in terms of um, discrimination and the law explicit discrimination, um, because we have a federal system, girls throughout the United States and women are not equally protected. So for example, you mentioned child marriage before, um, each state has a different law on the minimum age of marriage. And there's only four states in the United States that have 18 as a minimum age, with no exception. 
So that is well below <laughs> the sort of international standard. Um, and if I remember correctly, yeah. the third and fourth only came in the last year. So prior yes. to that, there were yes, only the last two. Years, two. Yes, right. okay, yeah. Right, yep. yep. Um, so we're hopeful that will increase soon <laughs> in a few more states, but it really should be across the board. It shouldn't matter where you live. You shouldn't be married off um, at a young age. Um, similarly, um, we have an anti-female uh, anti genital mutilation statute, statute the Stop FGM Act, um, but the, the sort of previous version was challenged in court. Again, we think partly because we didn't have an equal rights amendment, which I think could have helped save that um, law uh, and kept it in place. Um, so those are a couple of examples. Um, and I think other areas of the law, uh, like pregnancy discrimination, um, paid parental leave, which we don't have, we are one of the few countries in the whole world that does not have paid parental leave. Those kind of more um, positive rights, I think, would be better protected. Mm -hmm. So I think we actually have a long way to go <laughs> here in the United States. Um, well, and to, yeah. um, you know, something that occurred to me while you were talking is that um, for at least in the United States, there's a lot of conversation about states have their own rights and they have the, you know, the, the United States was established for with that as a fundamental concept that a federal system was not the end all be all. Um, and that, uh, you know, I think one of the arguments as I was thinking through a little bit of some devil's advocacy was, um, you know, well, why, why couldn't a girl get married at 16? You know, if she's legally competent and there are other ways to test that. And I think that maybe goes back to points all of you have made of, well, there are other circumstances because if she is getting married because of abuse or needs the support or some other economic issue, homelessness or something like that, those are other things that could be addressed um, as opposed to as opposed to changing that particular law um, or allowing that particular law to stand, I guess, technically since. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, so there are, it, it just comes back, I think, to the complication um, and the intermingling of all of these issues. Um, I do have a question too on, since we have been living in, um, unique for our generation circumstances for the last 11 to 12 months, um, depending on where you are in the world. How has COVID-19 impacted the work that you're doing and, you know, for, for the uh, sex trafficking and for the, um, the um, uh, gender harm? How, how is that impacting the work that you're doing? Are you seeing increases of those instances? Is it harder to get access to legislators? Just curious. Yeah, um, I think a major thing that we've seen in the past 12 or so months um, has been the, um, you know, the increase in the use of the internet uh, for sexual exploitation uh, in the sense that, you know, children are at home, adults are at home and, you know, coupled with in increasing connectivity online um, has really given an opportunity for uh, sex predators to hunt and target uh, young girls in particular. So I think across the world, you know, whether you're talking of Africa, the North America, Europe, uh, what's been really startling is the, is the rapid increase in online sexual exploitation. 
Um, so for us as equality now, it just gives us um, a more platform to be calling on governments to really look at this uh, from a global perspective, because what we are saying is that this is a global problem. It's multi-jurisdictional. So for instance, a victim may be located in London, the offender is in the Netherlands, the, the server is registered in the US, you know, who has jurisdiction mm -hmm. to deal with that sort of issue. Um, so those are some of the you know, questions that we are asking governments to really consider and say, do we need to be thinking about international standards um, that define what, what, what online sexual exploitation and abuse is and you know, looks like, that also look at issues of tech regulation that deal with international cooperation to bring you know, offenders to book. Um, so I think over the next few years, uh, for us, that's going to be a, a huge priority, of course, working with others um, to ensure that that is uh, properly addressed. What we've seen as well in the context of trafficking um, is a huge increase in uh, online trafficking, particularly for younger girls. Um, so the United Nations uh, organ for drugs and crime that deals with uh, trafficking has just issued a report where they are saying they are also seeing, you know, across the world, a rapid increase in uh, online sex trafficking in terms of, you know, young girls being recruited, also being exploited online through live streaming of sexual abuse and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, that's going to be a huge priority, but it also means, you know, once people are indoors, there's limited access to services, then, you know, even trafficked victims are not getting the level of support that they could be getting if you know things were sort of normal so again that's an area for governments to be looking at so in this context where everything is closed up how do we ensure that uh, traffic people who are really really vulnerable are able to access the services they require we've seen as well because of court closures um, across the world that some of the cases are not going through, you know, the court system. So it's all of those things, you know, uh, some of it at a very practical level uh, where we need to be finding practical solutions to help, particularly those that have already been identified, but also to just deal with this massive, massive problem of um, exploitation online. Yeah. That makes sense. And Flavia, and the harmful practices, Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, with, the, with the advent of COVID and um, the, re the quick realization of, about the shadow pandemic that is gender-based violence, uh, I think uh, that's already something that we have, we have all somehow wrapped our minds around and said it's an issue. But I think it's just important to say that under that umbrella of gender-based violence, it's not just domestic violence, uh, maybe uh, intimate partner violence and things like that. There are also other categories of violence that are in there that also need to be highlighted and, and, and be addressed, especially uh, in certain communities where child marriage and, and and uh, female genital mutilation are also prevalent because we are seeing that uh, um, with, the, with the economies uh, on their knees and things like that, people, uh, unemployment rates are high, etc. In communities where, and in, in families where um, the girls uh, are a source of also bride price and income for the family as seen as, uh, you know, so you find that at that point, girls, especially because uh, schools are also being closed or has been, have been also very haphazard, sometimes are school closures and things like that. So you find families are also marrying off girls earlier, maybe than they would have. So uh, to actually get bride price, so 
us to sustain the family. So the whole issue around commodification of girls uh, as a way of uh, support, sustaining the family. And in, in context where that marriage uh, that has to be preceded by FGM, because in certain communities, for example, FGM is indeed a precursor to marriage. It's actually a rite of passage to, to enable a girl to pass into womanhood and eventually to marriage. So you find that now by extension, uh, FGM would uh, would proceed. So uh, that vulnerability uh, of certain groups uh, of, uh, of women and girls has also increased in very many communities around the world uh, where these practices uh, maybe would ordinarily occur maybe uh, after school uh, at 18 years or maybe during school holidays, etc. So now there's really been a ripe ground for uh, for some of these uh, violations and, 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 and violence to uh, to take place. And also the issue around, just linked to Sisi's point on um, on uh, online sexual exploitation. Also, the whole issue around adolescent sexuality, uh, I think is also very critical and central in this because uh, in many communities, we actually uh, burying our heads in the sun that adolescents are actually sexual beings and they should actually be provided with information, services, et cetera, to, to, to allow them to, to, to engage in you know, non-coercive, uh, consensual and non-exploitative uh, sexual activity uh, and, and things like that. But in many countries we've either criminalized adolescent sexuality or there's so much taboo around it. And especially now with COVID and people are being home, schools are being closed and things like that. So you find that now there's also maybe a spike in teenage pregnancies because there's no access to services and information and sometimes even a, a violence and abuse. So I think even just beyond the child marriage and FGM, there's also something to be said around access to sexual reproductive health and rights. So that's on one front in terms of the issues that are just coming up uh, that we need to fix in quote unquote normal times so that we're able to address them if you have pandemics and things like that. I think that's already uh, something that's out there. Another thing is that logistically it's also a nightmare for many community-based organizations and NGOs, uh, whatever level you're operating on as an INGO, NGO, CBO, this really a logistical nightmare because you, uh, it's, it's an issue of around accessing safe spaces or shelters for, for uh, women and girls who are vulnerable or who, who are in need. So the protocols are just elevated because it's also the risk of transmission of the, of the, of the, of the virus. So there's just so much red tape or sometimes some, actually some self, safe spaces have actually just totally shut down because it's just too much of a risk to be able to, to work with girls in the community, which means the surveillance has reduced, the vulnerability, vulnerabilities have increased. So for me, the, 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 the point that I'd really like to make here is that also as um, what you're coming to realize and we have to emphasize as uh, non-governmental actors is that the state is so central in this. The state has a primary responsibility mm -hmm. to ensure that whether we have a pandemic or not, whether we're in a state of emergency or not, that every member of the population needs to be protected. So we need to ensure that our institutions work, they're well-funded, they're budgeted, they're budgeted for adequately, that uh, state officials are able to work. So NGOs can never usurp the role of the state. We can complement, we can work alongside the state, but it's so important that we have institutions, be they national human rights institutions, gender commissions, police, the judiciary, as Sisi has mentioned, uh, some of them are li literally on their knees and things like that. So I think our advocacy, our, our advocacy as also as human rights actors really needs to target the states in a way that we are pushing for systems that work 
systems that can stand the test of time, even when there are things, even when you are on our knees, they should be able to just rise up and ensure that everyone is protected. Because right now, NGOs are also human beings without, you know, the state machinery. Uh, Community-based workers are also just trying to, uh, to do what they can. But if the state was up to the task, then many of us, many of these things would not be happening uh, as we are seeing them happening currently. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that that's something, one of the things that has highlighted for me, um, not just me, obviously, but that the, there are a lot of system changes that are necessary still. And I think, but for the pandemic, that might not have been as obvious. Uh, people just sort of walk through thinking, okay, this seems to be working. Um, and you know, certainly, yes, there are occasional problems or this didn't go the way I thought it would, but we are really seeing the challenge to the entirety of the systems and the institutions um, as a result of this pandemic. All right, now it's time for the lightning round. It's my favorite part of these. Um, so I am going to start with a different one of you each for each of these questions. Um, but, um, and Antonio, I'm gonna start with you because you did a little bit of uh, talking about what progress you hope to see in the next year. So I'm gonna start with you on that question and then we'll go around. So really at the legal equality level in the United States, I really hope that we do get an equal rights amendment. Um, yeah, it's time, it's way past time and we're way behind so many other countries. So now's a good time to do it. Um, yeah, and as I mentioned, the ERA coalition is really in the forefront of that, that we're part of. Um, in, ter in terms of child marriage in the US, um, at the state level, our partner Unchained at last is doing really great work um, to get those laws changed. That's great. Titi, what, what progress do you hope to see in the next year? I think for me, the thing that uh, sometimes, you know, just stops me from sleeping properly is the online sexual exploitation and abuse. I just can't get my head around it. And what I'm hoping for is, you know, some level of global commitment at the UN level uh, that, you know, we, we will look at this uh, globally and as an international issue. Yeah. Okay. And Flavia? Uh, so for me, I think I, I'm hoping to see more appetite to really address gender equality, patriarchy, the, like the, real, the real structural issues, so that we're not just putting a band-aid to issues and stopping certain practices and reducing certain numbers, but a real desire to just shift the power dynamics uh, uh, that really make that bring us to where we are and to, that cause all these problems. Uh. And uh, lastly, I think something around more collaboration, less working of silos in, in silos, like a really a real holistic approach in terms of how we're addressing these issues because so many of them are so interlinked you're dealing with the same girl the same woman but we tend to tear her up in pieces it's as if those do not all meet at the same point so really more collaboration yeah okay all right and then Flavia I'm going to start with you for the follow-up on this is what gives you hope that progress will be made oh for me what gives me hope as an African woman feminist uh is the youth the power that I see of the young people, I'm no longer young, unfortunately, I don't qualify in any statistics. So <laughs> I just, just that drive and push and up, like it's just self-organizing. That gives me hope that at one point we will be able to demystify human rights, like something that is done by human rights people, but human rights is something that's for all of us, by all of us, yeah. Titi, what about you? I think the awakening we have seen in, you know, uh, as a result of COVID, I think what it did was just to amplify to everyone, we just show and expose 
um, in a way the inequalities in our society. And I think, you know, for the general public, for policymakers, um, that we, you know, we sort of utilize that awakening that actually, you know, inequality is um, is, is the biggest issue that we need to be addressing. Yeah. Fantastic. And Antonia. So what gives me hope is that despite um, COVID, there are some governments that are taking action. So for example, the Dominican Republic recently raised their minimum age of marriage to 18. Um, and that was a law that we had highlighted with our partners uh, in our campaign. And also the new administration in the US, um, Biden reversed the ban on trans people in the military. Um, that was also another law that we, an issue that we highlighted. And I think, yeah, that gives me the hope um, that other governments can follow those good examples. Okay. Um, who else, and Cece, I'm gonna start with you on this one. Who else is doing good work um, to, to advance towards progress in this area? Yeah, um, for, me, for me, I think it's the local organizations and the community-based organizations that stand out. Um, I think of one of our partners in Malawi, a very small organization called People Serving Girls at Risk that are operating in very difficult circumstances, but are you know, going out of their way to ensure that girls within that context are protected from exploitation and abuse. Um, so really, you know, a big hand to the amazing work that they do with very limited resources, but the passion and commitment just always stands, you know, stands out, yeah. Okay, Flavia? So for me, it's similar to Titsi, really. There are unsung and celebrated heroes who may not be featuring on webinars and all these fancy banners and all who are doing fantastic work that we work with and interact with on a regular basis. So I can think of our partners in Burkina Faso, in Mali. I can think of our partners in India who are doing such fantastic and innovative work uh, that really humbles you, especially given the, the either the resistance or the res limited resources. I could mention quite a number, but basically, uh, the ones who are on the front line who have to face these things every day and, and go to sleep. For some of us, we can interact with it at a policy level. We may not really get the, you know, the crux of the matter in the way they do, and they still are able to really push forward. So for me, those are the people I would celebrate today. Yeah. Okay. And Antonia. Yeah. Um, I guess in addition to the partners that I already mentioned. Um, I would say that um, at the UN level, the Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women um, did a really good job of responding to the COVID situation. And I think this is critical for all funders of the kind of work we do is to be flexible, to understand what's happening on the ground um, and to understand that reality that human rights workers are facing um, and yeah, adjust whatever sort of demands or deliverables they're asking of us, um, yeah, as human rights defenders. So. Okay, and then the final question for the lightning round is, mm -hmm. what are you reading or listening to, or who are you following that you would advise our audience to also check out? So are there books, are there podcasts, um, are there articles, just thinkers in general? What recommendations? All right, Titi, you're unmuted, so I'm going to go with you first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just thinking of um, World Without Exploitation in the U.S. Uh, they run a series of uh, webinars looking at different aspects of um, exploitation and, you know, women's rights and so on. And I think a fantastic, uh, fantastic platform 
uh, for people to just, you know, get a sense of what's going on, what are the issues and how can they be involved as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Flavia? For me, I'm I'm struggling uh, podcasts and and books and and all that. Uh, so in terms of uh, podcasts, I'm currently listening to a lot of uh, intersectionality matters by Kimberly Crenshaw, and uh, because I think it's really it, it does matter, but like it, it's matter it matters really you know much more even now, and she's really given me. Uh, series of light bulbs. I'm also following um, a YouTube series, a, fe a feminist festival, festival series on South feminist futures, because it also just along the lines of intersectionality, we also know that feminism is not just about a single feminism. There's really uh, multiple experiences based on different identities that we bring to the table. So I'm listening to these wonderful African feminists really sharing their thoughts on various issues. And in terms of books, uh, another podcast I'm listening to is another one living a feminist life so you can see where i'm going with my mm -hmm. free time it's all about uh, <laughs> feminism and more feminism and more feminism yeah and some lovely african authors that i'm also listening to so yeah just really trying to profile and understand uh, our region africa and really just try to put it on the map yeah yeah. yeah antonia um i would recommend the podcast that came out last year actually called ordinary equality um, and I think I'm going to re-listen to it actually after this conversation today. Um, it's a series all about the Equal Rights Amendment from the history to all the different populations um, that would be covered by the term on the account of sex. Um, so not just women, but like that intersectional approach that Flavia mentioned. Um, yeah, it's really, really well done um, and a huge range of speakers. So it's an ordinary equality I would recommend. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us for tea today. And I really want to thank you so much for being with us today and for challenging us. And we know that these conversations never really end, so we will keep doing the work. But I, I really want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with us today. Thank you so thank much you. for having yeah, thank us. You. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.
CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.